I think the other big category of news is the expansion of discussions on dexamethasone, a corticosteroid that was only issued as a press release last week, but now a preprint has come out. Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the June 24th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CME and CE information. To attest for CME or CE credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CME and CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar and previous webinars can be found under the resource tab. Today's learning objectives are, describe serologic response associated with asymptomatic COVID-19, describe features of antibody response in convalescent individuals, and discuss current data pertaining to steroids in people with COVID-19. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters and are free of influence from Pfizer Incorporated. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Thanks for your time, Dr. Allwater. Thank you, Faith. And, you know, this week there's been a lot in the news, but of concern, I think patients are asking me, and I'm sure family and friends are discussing, you know, the hot spots. What does this mean? What kind of thresholds are important to consider? And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in our Q&A and a little more next week as well. But uh, I do believe that everyone, of course, should wear masks and social distancing. But I think intelligently, especially if you're traveling this summer in cars or whatnot, need to be aware of what's going on in your communities and where you might be going in order to make safe judgments and know what kind of risks you might need to consider. One of the most frequently asked questions are about the COVID-19 antibodies for the coronavirus. I thought I would just give a case of a surgeon who was really one of the earliest cases that I had heard of that turned out to have a positive viral RNA test in March of 2020. Had very mild symptoms, but was concerned and was tested and was found to be positive. So he felt very lucky, was very glad. And of course he felt, gosh, you know, now I shouldn't be able to get coronavirus again. You know, I'm not really very worried. But then I uh, decided maybe I should get antibody testing. And these tests were ones that were developed in a variety of different laboratories with different testing specificities. But I found that he was negative both to an IgG and an IgM at this stage, and probably at this point had been infected five weeks earlier. So, you know, what does this mean? He asked, gosh, you know, does this mean I can get coronavirus again? I'm not really immune. Uh, maybe the first PCR test was negative. So uh, I, I would say it, there's very low likelihood that a PCR test 
is a false positive unless if there is a mix-up in sampling and labeling. So I, I think that was a real test because what we're beginning to find out is that patients that are either asymptomatic or very mild symptoms seem to have different immune responses than people that were sick and hospitalized, which I think had characterized most of our knowledge early on. Here's a couple of recent papers that I thought might be informative for you. This is, uh, of course, from China. Followed 37 asymptomatic patients, you might remember, in Wuhan, that anyone who was positive was quarantined, but in a field hospital or hospital, so these patients were observed. Uh, very carefully. And of this group, a couple of things that are sort of shown here that I thought are most telling is that if you look at panel B, people who had symptoms tended to have shorter durations of shedding than people who had developed no symptoms. And if you look at panel E, people that were symptomatic were much more likely to develop IgG antibodies than those who uh, did not develop any symptoms. So although it's a small study, one thought is that people that don't develop symptoms, they're less ill, they have less inflammatory responses, and also harnessing the immune system do shed virus longer. Now, they may not be infectious longer. We don't know that, but you can detect the virus longer. And they don't really mount antibodies with nearly the frequency, and especially the ones that we think are important and that are neutralizing antibodies. 40% in this asymptomatic group were completely seronegative, much like perhaps our surgical friend in the case, versus only about 13% in the symptomatic group. And so one of the caveats here is we don't really yet know how uh, protective immunity might be. We know for coronaviruses, we don't think it's terribly long-lived, but we don't know the details, of course, at this stage. Another paper uh, published in Nature looked at a larger group of people who were improved and about 40 days after onset, and they looked at a neutralizing antibody titers to uh, what's called a pseudovirus or something that's thought to very closely represent the real infection. And what they found were titers that on the whole were lower than one might anticipate, with about a third having low titers to no titers, and a very small percentage having high titers. And it was a very heterogeneous response, meaning people developed a lot of different antibodies. But the ones that worked best were the ones that bound to the receptor binding domain of the virus, specifically that gears to the ACE2 receptor. And even though these were not made in large amounts, they seemed to work very well. So from this study, it looked like most don't really have high levels of neutralizing antibodies. Uh, so we don't know how well, but uh, we, you know, obviously the lower levels you have, the less likely you'll have very long immunity, at least on an antibody basis. And that these RBD or these receptor binding antibodies may be an excellent target if we were to try to refine our vaccine approaches. On the flip side, those are all about B cells. Often vaccines have been targeted against the so-called spike protein of the coronavirus. I just want to mention this paper that came out in May, but, but I think it is telling that we're so focused on antibodies, but in this paper of people that did have the coronavirus, 
they did develop T cell responses that were not just on the spike protein, but others. And, and of course, these may also be important even if you're re-exposed to the coronavirus in terms of preventing productive infection or certainly serious illness. So antibodies are probably not the whole story, but we're still putting together what it means to have protective immunological responses. And of course, since we've only been dealing with this for six months, how long this will provide protection. I think the other big category of news is the expansion of discussions on dexamethasone, a corticosteroid that was only issued as a press release last week, but now a preprint has come out. Uh, what we know is that this was a very large pragmatic trial. It was open label, so it could be subject to biases. Uh, that also had multiple, multiple arms. There was the hydroxychloroquine arm. There was uh, people got protease inhibitors and so on and so forth. Uh, so the, the protocols were quite complex, but it looked like those that got a six milligram per kilogram dose of dexamethasone improved significantly. Mortality rates fell from 40% to 28% if you were on a ventilator. If on oxygen, uh, less of a robust response. And these graphs sort of tell that tale a little bit. If you look at all participants, um, there's a, certainly a, a case to be made. But if you look at subgroups, those who were not ill enough to receive oxygen, it seems a bit detrimental in terms of a trend that crosses zero. But if you're on oxygen or mechanical ventilation, there were statistically significant differences that with a mortality endpoint, one could argue that that's you know, not really prone to subjective biases in an open label trial. So uh, it is meaningful. And so there's been a lot of discussion about this trial because it's the first to really show a mortality benefit it's a very large trial, although it's pragmatic and a bit messy. But I think people, uh, in a way, I think are a bit surprised at this. Uh, some comments are that, you know, the mortality in the United Kingdom was on average about 40%, which was higher than what's typically seen in a lot of our uh, intensive care unit populations here in North America. There were other interventions that a number of the patients received, although not at high frequencies. And, and basically in ARDS, a lot of our critical care and pulmonary colleagues you know, have a hard time believing this just because the, the corticosteroids have been studied in a lot of ARDS uh, situations without any clear and consistent benefits. So personally, I feel like this is compelling enough that uh, I would certainly consider it for patients. I think this is still subject to discussion. And of course, this preprint has not yet been available for peer review. But a much smaller study was uh, supportive and it was a cohort retrospective series. So it was cohort controlled that used methylprednisolone. Uh, this was, I believe, out of Spain with a mortality rate that was a little less than seen in the UK of 15%. And people got steroids on average about 10 days in illness when often people have more severe COVID disease. And what they saw was that mortality rate was about 14%. Those got steroids versus 24% that didn't. Sort of having a uh, risk and steroid treatment overall reduced mortality uh, 40%. So, uh, granted, it's a retrospective series subject to all those limitations, but at least another study that was uh, at least supportive. A preprint that was uh, an open label, but a prospective controlled trial called GlucoCOVID uh, was done again using methylprednisolone at a somewhat higher dose. 
here for three days and then a lower dose for three days, so six days. They used a composite endpoint of death ICU administration or non-invasive ventilation. And these are Kaplan-Meier plots not showing that they reached the, the primary endpoint, sort of a bit of, you know, who, who improved or survival curve, but not completely since they used composite. They did post hoc stratified by age. If you were less than 72, you can see you had relatively good outcomes with the red line compared to controls. And uh, this was also true, uh, but not to such a stellar degree in, in patients over the age of 72. So overall, the methylprednisolone in this trial was associated with a relative ratio of 0.55 as protective, uh, reaching endpoints per protocol. You can see that it was very good, but with wide confidence intervals. If you're under 72, if you're over 72, wasn't statistically significant. But following adjustments for age stratification, they still thought it uh, provided benefit. Uh, there weren't a lot of adverse reactions, at least, uh, although no one has, none of these studies have really followed people beyond 28 days. And so the conclusion here was that there's, a, I, I think, support again on another trial that glucocorticoids could have benefit. So I think I, I think we'll see. We're discussing it at Johns Hopkins and haven't yet reached a conclusion, but there's certainly a group that favors giving it, and we'll see. Uh, lastly, a sort of death knell for hydroxychloroquine, which was one of the early uh, drugs that were adopted as part of the Chinese guidelines, as was uh, corticosteroids. But this really has faded out after there's really been studies, including the recovery trial, which was one of the arms that did not show that this would likely have any benefit. Uh, so an NIH, as well as a Novartis-sponsored trial using hydroxychloroquine, were halted for this on this regard. So at least for hospitalized patients, hydroxychloroquine is not panning out. And to me, this was no surprise. It's, it really never worked in any other studies of viruses. So uh, Faith, I think we have some questions for today. Thank you, Dr. Allwater, for those updates. We will now continue to the listener Q&A. Dr. Allwater, this is our first question. Is remdesivir being widely used now? And can you comment on how effective it is? Yeah, so remdesivir is a nucleoside analog. It helps inhibit the virus from making new RNA in the host cell. It's only intravenous. Uh, the drug has been improved as only an investigational effort under the Emergency Use Act by the FDA. And allotments were shipped to states. Uh, after some confusion, uh, state health departments allocated to hospitals I believe in most states based on the uh, numbers of cases they had. So, uh, you know, how widely is it being used? I would say it's being used, at least from what we know from data, it seems to be best if it's used before people are ill enough to land in the ICU on a ventilator. So earlier in illness, but still requiring oxygen. We are using at Johns Hopkins and all of our affiliate hospitals in Maryland. We have lower numbers of new patients. I think with any new drug, people are becoming used to integrating it into their practice, but with a new disease, uh, I think uh, uh, patients are definitely being considered for its use. Uh, we have an approval process at our hospital. The federal government uh, plans on having distributed all the available supply uh, from Gilead by the end of June. Now, there may be more being manufactured, and of course, additional trials in progress. 
I don't really know how much of a new supply will be available and when. So there may be some limitations there, but so far I have not heard after initial concerns that we really had to uh, perhaps ration the drug. I don't believe that's been the case in, in most, uh, most places or institutions to date, they, they have supply. Thank you. Our second question. I see percent positive rates being posted by my state government, but don't have guidance on what it means or when I should be concerned. What is the general range of what's considered a low or high percent positive rate? Yeah, so um, it not only low or high, but is it changing? I think this, as I've spoke about with some of the new states grappling with increased cases, it's not just the number, but you can get insights from the percent of the tests that are positive. The WHO has issued a level of 5% as a concerning level that if you're higher, it's very much indicative of probably widespread community uh, spread. Uh, as of today, 21 states in the United States are not below 5%, so in a concerning trend. And many of those are the states that are uh, now just grappling that weren't really hit in the earlier uh, part of the pandemic uh, this winter. Now, some states have gotten to be very low. Vermont is at, I think, at 0.1%, very low. And so chances of community spread there are possible, but very low. New York City is also dropped to be very low. And again, it's more the changes that are con concerned. What are their trends? So I'd really encourage you to become familiar with what's happening, not only in your state, because if you have a very big state, you really wanna know what are the trends in the, the communities where you live. And those that have vastly uh, and quickly rising rates are, are very concerning. And I'd be very careful doing any activities indoors for prolonged periods, and certainly everyone should wear masks and still socially distance, uh, which is still going to be prudent for the foreseeable future in any state. Okay, and this is our last learner question. I have heard about a new NP swab that can test for both COVID-19 and influenza. Can we expect to see these being used at COVID-19 testing sites moving forward? If so, when? Yeah, I think this certainly will hopefully be widely available by the fall and winter respiratory season. Um, the big two viruses had always historically been influenza and respiratory syncytial virus or RSV, uh, both uh, in pediatric as well as adult populations. We have to add uh, COVID-19, so we would now have a trio although flu and COVID would be the most important for either infection control or trying to decide if you should embark on anti-influenza treatment in mild, even in mild cases for people at risk. So I do think this will likely be the standard. Also be forewarned that there could be co-infections. So that's why just checking one and then not the other, uh, sort of with singleton tests. So you do a flu, it's positive. You say, hey, you got the flu, you can go home. Uh, viruses often can be co-infections at the same time, especially if they're circulating at high frequency. So I do think these kinds of tests will replace or at least supplement the singleton tests uh, for COVID that we have now, especially during the influenza season. Great. Thank you again for answering those questions. As a reminder, to claim CME or CE credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity.
you'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer at dkbmed.com. Don't forget to access our resource center at covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll find a range of information, including the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thank you, Dr. Allwater. Yeah, thank you, Faith. And uh, everyone, please keep an eye to what's happening in your communities. Uh, wear a mask, socially distance, tell your patients the same, and I hope you're all well. Stay safe. Thank you.